Amen, amen. Church, it's good to be worshiping with you this morning, and I'm thankful for the gifts and leadership of all those who have sung us and prayed us to this point in the service, and I'm very thankful for this amazing scripture passage that I get to share with you today as we continue our sermon series entitled Galatians Afresh where we are immersing ourselves in Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And this letter, it expounds on some of the core issues of Christian life and faith. What is the gospel? Justification by faith, Christian identity, and freedom in Christ. And today we're going to be looking at two verses, really a verse and a half, that contains some of the most glorious statements in all of Paul's letters. Statements that are both thoroughly theological and also profoundly practical. So hear now the word of God from Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just let those words just wash over you as we pray. Lord, you alone are the word, and you alone have the words of eternal life. Speak, Lord. Speak to us as we're gathered here today and speak through us as we are scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And then we pray this in the name of our risen and reigning King, Christ Jesus. Amen. Several months ago, my wife, Jamie, was meeting with someone who was going through some very deep struggles in her life. And Jamie's friend had started to attend church, so she was hearing about Jesus, and she was interested in Jesus. And Jamie and others were meeting with her and encouraging her and praying for her and with her. And one day, this friend rather desperately told Jamie, I believe everything that I'm hearing. And I want to believe everything that you're telling me about Jesus. I just don't know how to get from here to there. And that is such a crucial question, isn't it? It's a question that all of us have asked in one form or another throughout our lives. How do I get from here to there? If we're just beginning to hear the gospel as good news, how do I get from my unbelieving here to a believing there? If we're in a relationship with Christ, how do I move from a superficial here to the depth and intimacy and maturity of there? If we're stuck in shame over something that happened in the past, if we're harassed by some present temptation or held captive to some future worry, how do I move from the stronghold of here 
to the freedom of there. And if we're overwhelmed by the meanness and injustice in the world, how do I get from the ugliness of here to the reconciling beauty of there? How do we get from here to there? And in these short verses, Paul has a powerful answer to that question. And the first thing he tells us is that true transformation, comprehensive conversion, a brand new life, oddly enough, starts with being crucified with Christ. Now, in the Jerusalem temple of Jesus' day, we have a picture of the primary barrier in our journey from here to there. In the temple, there was a massive curtain, a veil that blocked the people from entering into the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God dwelt. And as a result, guilt-ridden people gathered here, but the forgiving presence of God was there. Hurting people huddled here, but the healing presence of God was there. Thirsty people tarried here, but the water of life, it welled up there. And it was that curtain, that veil that was torn in two from top to bottom on the day that Christ was crucified, making a way for us to move into the transforming fire, the warmth of the presence of God, making a way for us to move from here to there. But a form of that veil lives on in each one of us. 20th century pastor and author A.W. Tozier insightfully tells us that self, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. And it can be removed only in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. We may as well try to instruct leprosy out of our system. There must be a work of God in destruction before we are free. This is the obstacle within, the self-life, woven from the dark threads of self-righteousness, self-pity, self-absorption, self-protection, self-justification. The self-life hides itself in the shadow of our souls. But the gracious Spirit of God uses the painful circumstances of our lives the questions we can't answer, the relationships we can't fix, the problems we can't solve to reveal that veil. And in those trying times, we all know what it's like to bump up against an internal barrier that prompts us to love ourselves at the expense of others, to get just a little bit more for me rather than giving justice for others to pursue my ambition rather than God's mission. And this internal veil is not pierced by earning or learning. As with the curtain in the temple, only the cross can make a way. We must be willing to deny the self, to pick up our cross daily and die daily, by surrendering our wills. I mean, Christ tells us as much when he says, for those who want to save their life, they'll lose it. 
Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And as lonely as that choice sounds, we are never alone when we make it. When we pick up our cross, we are always crucified with Christ, who joins us in our suffering. Like the repentant thief who was crucified on Calvary beside Christ, in our times of dying, we will experience the Lord of life turn his face to us and whisper, Today, you will be with me. A personal encounter with the cross is the decisive first step in moving from here to there. And I can say that with confidence because Scripture says that with confidence. In Romans 6, 5 and 6, we are told, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because we know that our old self is crucified with Christ. Indeed, having been crucified with Christ, Paul tells us that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Having deposed the self, we can make space for Christ to take his rightful place at the center of our lives, on the throne of our lives. And from there, he can rule and reign. From there, he can renew our minds and reorder our desires and reorient our lives. And this doesn't mean that we cease to exist or that our personhood is erased. It's quite the opposite. This isn't the end of me. It's the beginning of Christ in me, where we are becoming who God created us to be living in dynamic relationship with God and Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of years ago, Noel did a verse-by-verse teaching on the book of Galatians, and he gave a great illustration of this phenomenon. Because many of us have experienced a computer problem that required an IT specialist to remote in to your computer. And if you've done this, you know how strange it is to watch your cursor move across the screen by itself for files to open and files to close, and you're not touching anything. And after a while, it's actually uncomfortable realizing that you've given some unseen person total control of your system. But that's an amazing picture of exactly what Paul is exhorting us to do, to trust the unseen spirit of Christ to come in and dwell within us and set things right. And we welcome the spirit by surrendering control, allowing the spirit not only to repair what's broken and remove what's corrupted, but also to do the larger work of reconfiguring our basic settings and recalibrating our whole operating system. Sure, we still have work to do, But now it's a completely different arrangement. And the result is not merely a new me or a better me. It's Christ living in me. Moving from the here of the self-life to the there of the Christ life, it's a decision followed by a process. 
It's adjusting to a new identity that demands a new way of life. It's about unlearning the reflexive practice of self-reliance and practicing intentionally God-reliance. The book of Proverbs describes it this way as leaning to our not leaning not to our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging God. And the message paraphrase restates this so well when it says, trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. This is the practice of faith that takes, well, it takes practice. In his book, You Are Never Alone, Max Licato tells the story of Bill Irwin. Irwin was not the first person ever to walk the Appalachian Trail. Other adventurers have hiked that 2,100 miles on that rugged terrain, enduring the often harsh conditions, the camping, and the cold. Bill Irwin wasn't the first person to do it, but he was the first blind person to do it. He was 50 years old in 1990 when he set out on his hike. A recovering alcoholic and a committed Christian, he memorized 2 Corinthians 5-7 as his mantra for the march. I walk by faith, not by sight. I walk by faith, not by sight. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't use a GPS, a map, or a compass. It was just Irwin, his German shepherd, and the unseen and uneven terrain. Irwin estimated that he fell 5,000 times. That's 20 times a day, every day, for eight months. That means he had to pick himself up and keep going. 20 times a day, every day, for eight months. He battled hypothermia, cracked ribs, and often daily bloody hands and bloody knees. But he made it. He made the long walk by faith and not by sight. And we are doing the same sort of thing. Not on the unpredictable Appalachian trails, but, on, but through the unpredictable trials of our lives. Through all the relationships that we can't fix, the questions we can't answer, and the problems that we can't solve. We're actually walking a road that's steeper and longer. The path between offered prayer and answered prayer. The path between tears of fear and tears of joy. The path between here and there. This is the kind of life that Paul's talking about when he says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's saying, I live in the real world, the same world you live in. The world that's hard, the world that's often unfair and unjust, and the world where I seek seem to fall and fail 20 times a day, every day. But Paul knew that there's more to the world than what we can see. And even though Paul lived in the flesh, he wasn't defined by the flesh. His mantra was, I live in Christ, and Christ lives in me. 
Now, at this point, you might be saying, that sounds awesome for Paul. But he's Paul. He's an apostle. right? He's got this extensive religious education. He's bold and he's brash and he's brave and courageous. I'm none of those things. But church, none of those things made Paul's faith what it was. According to Paul, his powerful faith arose out of the powerful reality that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Just listen to how breathtakingly personal that is. Paul says Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Is that how you think about Jesus? I'm in a book study with a group of folks on Sunday afternoons, and last week the book asked this question. When you consider Christ's death and resurrection, do you take it personally? That he died and rose again for your freedom? How would you answer that question? Now don't get me wrong, the Bible doesn't point us toward an individualized faith, but rather into a community of faith. A communal faith. We're meant to follow Christ with others. However, the Bible does point us to a personal faith in a personal God. God is love. That is important and true. God loves the world. That is also important and also true. But God also loves you personally. Listen to Isaiah 43.1. The Lord says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jesus says that God knows each of us so intimately that he has numbered the hairs on our heads, even mine. That's personal. Now, you may be thinking, here's what I'll do. I'll go online and order a personalized Bible that inserts my name in over 7,000 Bible verses. I'm not making it up. That's a real thing. According to the website, it says, the scriptures will come alive again as your name is personalized into the text, such as the Lord is Paul's shepherd. Paul should not want that's all well and good, I, I guess, but the Lord has so much more for you than just that. God doesn't want the Bible to come alive for you because your name is printed in it. God wants Christ to come alive in you because your name is written on his nail-scarred hands. Do you believe that? You are not part of a nameless and faceless crowd that Christ reluctantly saved from a distance while holding his nose. Christ is the one who leaves the 99 in search of one, you. Christ died for you. Christ rose again for you. Christ loves you and the loving and living Christ wants to live in you. So when you feel stuck in that shallow self-life, take up your cross and be crucified with Christ.
and you will be raised up to intimate new life in Him. When you're hopeless about a relationship that you just can't seem to fix, when you're plagued by doubt over questions you just can't answer, when you're overwhelmed with problems you just can't solve, remember it is no longer you who lives, but it is Christ who lives in you. And with Him, all things are possible. And when shame says that you're unworthy, when loneliness whispers that you're unwanted, when condemnation claims that you're unwelcome in God's sight, trust the faithfulness of Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Christ living in you. That's how you get from here. To there. Amen.